Hey, it's Hugo Bown-Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, I'm speaking with Jeremy Howard, Shreya Shankar, and Hamil Hussein about large language models, OpenAI, and the existential crisis for machine learning engineering. So Jeremy Howard is co-founder of Fast.ai, an ex-chief scientist at Kaggle and creator of the ULMFIT approach on which all modern language models are based. Shreya Shankar is at UC Berkeley, and she's also ex-Google Brain, Facebook, and Viaduct. Hamil Hussein has his own generative AI and LLM consultancy, Parlance Labs, and was previously at Out of Bounds, GitHub, and Airbnb. So part of the intention of this panel was to explore the impact of OpenAI's Developer Day, and as it happened, we recorded this panel less than 24 hours before the OpenAI board let Sam Altman go, which precipitated a sequence of events that I really don't need to tell you about. But it's clearly worth discussing those more, which I'll be doing with Jeremy Howard on November 29 in another live stream. Uh, and there's a link to that in the show notes to sign up. A bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody else you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know is currently on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle. And I'm at Hugo Bound. It would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice. And if you like it, write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. If you don't like it, do not write us a review. Also, this episode was recorded as a YouTube live stream. So when we occasionally refer to people commenting in the chat, that's what we're on about. We plan to have more such live streams and you can subscribe to our channel to keep up to date. The link's in the show notes. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. further ado i just i'll get everyone to introduce themselves in a bit more detail but i'm just so excited to be here with with shreya shankar who is at uc berkeley but ex google brain facebook and viaduct hamil hussein who's currently started his own super interesting consultancy parlance labs but ex out of bounds github and airbnb as well and jeremy howard fellow australian co-founder of fast.ai Honorary professor at the University or Uni of Queensland, as we call it, former president and chief scientist at Kaggle, creator of the ULMFIT approach on which all modern language models are based, but most importantly, a connoisseur of delicious biscuits, which we've discussed many times on podcasts. The first podcast recording we did, people Except said, why Americans did you talk about- Ameri Wait, wait, wait. Americans don't know what biscuits are. But there, there aren't even biscuits in America, really. The closest they have are cookies, but they're not quite the same, are they? They're not the biscuits you get in the South of the US. They're exactly. I remember cookies. once when I came to San Francisco through Australia, I hope people aren't dropping off already like to talk about this type of stuff the whole time. But I, I, I brought you and your, your family a bunch of Tim Tams, which, you know, you and, and, and your daughter were absolutely amazed. Yep. No, people are engaging. Any biscuits to recommend is the most important yeah. question in the double coat Tim Tams. Double coat and and the yeah double coat yeah mint slices and if if it's a hot day in summer put them in the freezer. 
just for a bit and then, then get into it. But so let's, okay. let, so I think we're all done. So we'll yeah, wrap it up. Yeah, this has been a great conversation <laughs> and I appreciate all, all of your time, but I'd love to just go around the, the proverbial table, the, the Zoom room, the YouTube stream and get everyone to introduce themselves briefly and let me know a bit about why you're so interested in LLM. So Shreya, I thought we could start with you. Yeah. Hey everyone. I'm Shreya. I am a PhD student at UC Berkeley studying HCI and databases. And I am particularly interested in data management for machine learning centered around, you know, how can we improve ML engineers' lives? Like what's that human-centered focus? What are the problems they face? And how can we help more people become ML engineers? Because there just aren't as many as the world needs. So what really excites me about LLMs is that they make machine learning more accessible to use in software projects. So you don't need to have like very strong ML expertise or backgrounds, but you still run into all of the same problems that ML engineers run into when they deploy their ML models. So I think it's just a super fun world of seeing, you know, how do we build better tooling for these people? Amazing. And I'm really excited later on to to dive deeper into what you've seen in the space and how the, like the mechanics of how these things have changed and kind of what, what you see happening, what you see happening in the future. Hamill, tell us a bit about yourself and why, why no, you're no, so wait, interested wait, in- Wait, 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 let's not do that. I'll introduce <laughs> Hamill because Hamill's too humble. So I don't do it properly. I love it. it wow, so okay. Hamill, Hamill, to use the, those of you that don't know, is the guy that led the team that created the first coding large language model product at GitHub. It was awesome. And so it so impressed the people at GitHub that they shut it down and bought something similar from OpenAI instead. I don't know what they were thinking, but it was really awesome. And it set, set the agenda in terms of what's possible. I don't really remember such a big, successful kind of commercial rollout of a product large language model ever, actually, coding or otherwise. So, so Hamill's been doing this stuff for a while, but he's quite good. Thanks, Jeremy. I first learned about language models through Jeremy. Yeah, so owing to Jeremy, I got started on all, all of this stuff and continue to actually learn quite a bit all the time from Jeremy. And so perhaps Hamill, you could say a bit about why you're so excited about LLMs now and a bit more context around Hamill. I mean, Hamill's been working machine learning way before it was, it was that that popular as has, has, has Jeremy as well, but been working in ML for 20 plus years in, in, in consultancy as well and kind of come full circle to it now with LLMs. Yeah. Why is it exciting? It's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's, it seems very obvious that they're so, you can do so many things with them. They're very capable. It's a very easy to use substrate to do so many tasks, to interact directly with humans. It opens up a whole new world of products that you can that you can develop and make so i think yeah that's it's, it's really exciting i think it would only be fair to have a sense of symmetry here so hamill would you mind introducing jeremy i can definitely try it's very it's definitely a tall order to introduce someone as impressive as jeremy but you know jeremy has been doing machine learning for a long time he trained his horse neural net very very long time ago i don't even know how many years ago that is Jeremy, how many years ago was that? Like super long time ago. My first neural net, um, 30 years, I think. Yeah. So it was like even before they were cool or even probably a lot of people knew about it. People know Jeremy for a lot of different reasons. 
Jeremy started many successful businesses. Um, and but then more recently, you know, he's created Fast AI, which is a education and research lab that has ed educated many people on, on machine learning and AI, including, and that's kind of how I got to know Jeremy. And, you know, Jeremy is actually, actually very central to this uh, discussion about LLMs in, in a very big way. Um, so Jeremy and uh, several colleagues produced research, uh, ULM Fit, which we may get into in this podcast, which was one of the fundamental pieces of research that enables large language models, particularly around transfer learning, which is a really big deal. And right now, Jeremy is continuing to do research and education and is a really big force of nature in the field and does quite a lot for the community. Thanks, Samuel. So with all of that in, in mind, what, what's so exciting, Jeremy, for you at the moment about large language models? I don't know. I'm trying to decide how excited I am still. It's quite transformative. So something I'm really excited about is when my wife, Rachel, and I started Fast.ai, the, the goal was to make AI more accessible. So that was back in like 96, 97, I guess. Because at that time, it was, you know, not accessible at all. There were five labs in the world basically studying deep learning in any serious way. And the only people who knew how to train a model that did anything useful were people who had been at those five labs. That was basically it. And we had some progress in making AI more accessible, but only some, because in the end, we, we were really hamstrung by this uh, prerequisite we always had, which is if you were going to learn deep learning from us, you needed to have had at least a solid, a very solid year of coding background, you know, like an intense year of coding background or a less intense few years of coding background. And that ruled out most of the world. And so, but then when I think about large language models, it's like, well, maybe that's, and I'm sure that constraint's gone now. You know, you can do a lot more with no code or not much code. The idea of like being able to create useful things with code, you can now use stuff like ChatGPT and Codex to, you know, build things where it's doing most of the coding and you only need to understand enough to kind of tweak the logic here and there or paste in a string here or there or whatever. So. Yeah, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the ability of this technology to democratize access to coding and to AI so that lots of people can create the tools that they want in their lives and that maybe didn't have the skills or expertise to do it before. And something I want to hear from all of you about, you're all people who've built or researched tools to make machine learning and AI more accessible as we've been talking around. How do you think about your role or how have your personal goals changed with the advent of large language models. So maybe we could start with you, Jeremy, then go back around. I don't think the goals changed at all, right? So my wife, Rachel, and I did something quite out there when we started Fast.ai, which was we quit what we were doing and decided we weren't going to try and make any more money because we wanted to focus 100% on the mission of of making AI more accessible. And we felt like there was a huge danger that AI could result in a world where power is more centralized and that any kind of dependence on any external financial stuff would make us, you know, we'd have conflicts. And that's got, then that's happened, you know, like now we're all talking about it. So at the time, nobody else seemed to give a shit about 
centralization of power due to AI, but now it's happening and a lot of people care, which is great. I mean, it's a shame it's happening, but it's great people care. So the mission has actually suddenly become a lot more serious, actually, because the rubbers hit the road and it's clear that dystopian outcomes could absolutely happen. But the way of achieving that mission probably needs to change a lot as well. You know, it, 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 I always created everything at Fast AI on the basis that you could genuinely create world-class models as good as anybody on your laptop or on CoLab in a day or two. And that's still true somewhat in some areas, but it's not true if you want to create a GPT-4 competitor. It's not going to happen. Or else before, if you wanted to create an, an image net, you know, classify a competitor, you know, we outcompeted Google and Intel with their fleets of servers. But yeah, we're not, and that was on a, on a single machine, but we can't do that anymore. So yeah, things are changing. Yeah. And that's of course something you built software and abstraction layers for people to write code on, on, on top of to facilitate mm -hmm. that. This is something I hope we get to more. I've actually just put in the uh, chat uh, a link to your recent post, AI Safety in the Age of Disenlightenment. You did mention that having tools like ChatGPT can democratize a lot of what's happening. It democratizes a certain aspect of what's mm. happening. Of course, something I hope we get to later is how having access to hardware, to your own open source models, being able to fine tune them yourself and not relying on vendors where power is centralized is something we really need to think a lot more concretely about. Yeah. Increasingly, the better models are being trained on the output of models. You know, so for example, DALI mm. 3, which is magnificent, 99%, I think, of the captions are generated by AI. So we're kind of starting to enter into this positive feedback loop bit where AI is making AI better, which could be great, but it's a, it, it creates natural monopolies and monopolies are terrible for society and the more power a monopoly has the more terrible for society it is so it's a bit of a worrying situation and the more the better ai turns out to be the more problematic having it controlled by what's likely to be an AI, a monopoly is going to be somewhere between like economically a bit sad to an existential risk for human society. And I'm glad you gave voice to the positive feedback loops at play. Something I hope we get to at some point is the, the regulatory capture, which we're, which we're seeing play out in, in, in real time. But before we get there, I'd love to hear from, from Shreya. Um, how do you think about your role changing with the advent of LLMs or how have your personal goals changed to what you're working on? I don't know how I'm going to follow Jeremy's answer. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did this to you last time. As well. <laughs> yeah. I think for, for me, I feel like I'm, I'm always focused on studying like the ML and now AI engineer persona. So I feel like I inevitably started studying it well, because the people that I was already studying started to use it. So, yeah, I, I don't think I've like changed my goals, higher level goals per se, but I have started to notice I'm talking to people from different backgrounds now. The problems that they're running into are a little bit, you know, interesting, a little bit more 
different. People without the resources, without like lots of labeled data are now, you know, using LLMs. And so I, I think I'm just noticing a few of these things and I, I don't quite, you know, have it all together in my head and maybe it's worth studying more deeply. But yeah, my short answer is just, I don't think anything has really changed for me. I, I have to get a PhD. I have to graduate, like still doing the things that, that I've got to do. Hmm. I never got that. Absolutely. And I, I do think though, you, you already gave voice to, you know, this emerging role or emergent role of AI engineer and how, how that may change, maybe not necessarily the, the basic capabilities we all have when performing these roles, roles but perhaps the different types of skills and where the focus is may, may actually change. So Hammer was actually very interested you know, on talking about your, your paper, Revisiting Prompt and Engineering via Declarative Crowdsourcing and how that relates to the emergence of these new technologies and, and roles. So I, I hope to get to that. Hamel, you're, you're the one who inspired this panel in a lot of ways in this, in this episode by telling, telling me about your existential crisis that changes on a, on a daily basis. So, you know, what's, what's happening with you, man? Yeah. It's a bit of a roller coaster sometimes. Like, so the perspective... I am dealing with, so like, there's many different perspectives. So one perspective is as an ML engineer, you know, in industry, that's your career. If your career is somehow tied to helping people sort of operationalize ML or doing this quote, ML engineering stuff, especially with LLMs. It is confusing to look out really far and try to think about what might happen. I mean, it's of course confusing for almost any profession, but it is, it seems somewhat acute in ML engineering, like, okay, what do I focus on? You know, should I, with a limited amount of time, should I really fo be focusing on getting into the guts of, you know, like deep learning, you know, should I be training models, should I be more focused on something, some other aspect? And then it keeps shifting really fast, you know, so shifting in many ways. So like the models, the technologies, the centralization of resources of power and really, and so like what I think about is like, okay, how do I add the most value to society given my skill set, and what should I like, what should I do? What should I think about? And it's actually very confusing. Like one thought on one hand, one thought it goes through my mind is like, you know, will open AI, you know, automate away enough to truly democratize this in such a way where, you know, I should be really thinking about something else. And there's already some hints of that, like I experience in real time that my clients actually culture, you know, like the people I work with, a lot of them are using open AI and it's like very sticky. Um, and I'm, I'm excited just like everybody else about open source models. In a way, I want nothing more than to get people off of open AI and have their own open models. But I'm kind of swimming upstream sometimes against that force that I can feel. And it does, I do think about that. But I think there's a lot of, you know, with that being said, it's not all negative. There's this, it just the, that's the nature of this like existential crisis in a way. But then also there's a lot of ways that it can be exciting. Like, you know, there's definitely, so I think one exciting part of AI and ML has always been the intersection of different fields. Like if you can be a domain expert in a certain field and then bring ML to that field, that's always been an exciting part. I, I haven't 
drifted towards that yet, but I think there's even more opportunity for that now, like being an expert in two fields and bridging them together very deeply. And I, so those are like some positive thoughts that I have. It's like, okay, if I don't know what to do, maybe I will start drifting in that direction or concentrate in that direction. So I, I mean, honestly, and also, I don't know. If I look too far out in the future, but I try to think too far out in the future, then it's like, you can it's kind of like staring into an abyss. But so I tried to be a little bit more short term. But yeah, these are the thoughts that are going through my head. And to be fair, the reason that OpenAI is so sticky is because their models are really good and definitely cheap. So, which is great. It's nice to have really good models that we can use. Definitely. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, with like OpenAI Dev Day and stuff like that, like, you know, they're releasing more and more infrastructure around their models, not just their models. And, and people are really eager to take that on, even if it may not be as good as something else. It's very sticky. But isn't that like, like that, that really surprised me how bad they are at creating these things around their models. Like first they tried plugins and that was a total failure. Then they tried GPTs, which aren't a total waste of time, but the product's really badly made. I'm like, anybody who thinks that they've achieved AGI internally would have to explain how it is that they've got some kind of super intelligence internally, but they can't write a web app that's any good. Well, this is actually really important because when Hamill and I first talked about the OpenAI developer day, it was like, wow, this is mind-blowing. And then both of us went and used the stuff and it was like, oh, no, wait. Yeah. Me too. Why is it so bad? Why is it that you type text over here, and then if you type text over here, and then you hit this button, then all that text disappears with no way to get it back? It's like basic stuff. I'm sure they'll fix these things, but yeah, they don't have ASI internally, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And these products are subpar compared to the marketing, but I think the original ChatGPT release, right, was, because that wasn't the newest technology, right? As you well know, but the, the product experience somehow was transformational with that first chat GPT, right? It did capture Absolutely. a lot of us. Which is because it, it was a minimal interface on top of their model and mm. they're good at making models. So yeah. that, you know, there's lots of room to improve it, but that in itself was fantastic. So I do want to get a bit more into OpenAI Dev Day. Before that, I want to kind of think about the role of the ML engineer and how it changes now we have LLMs. Shreya, you actually had a question for, for Jeremy around this. I don't know if you have it in front of you and want to, want to ask it. Wait, Shreya is the one who knows Shreya is the one who knows all about this. I don't know why you're asking me a question. I don't think I know anything about this. Okay. <laughs> I think all of you know a lot about this. Not me. Oh, no, everyone has foster syndrome at the moment, to be clear. Even Hamill's, Hamill's like, no, we shouldn't do a podcast because I don't know enough. And I'm like, dude, this is wild. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, who <laughs> <be>? <laughs> so, yeah, Shreya, perhaps you could ask Jeremy your, your wonderful question. Jeremy, you've helped to teach so many people machine learning from non-traditional backgrounds. And they didn't study CS in college, for example. What skills or tools, like maybe two or three, do you see you know, people needing to have now for an ML engineer role that you weren't, you know, teaching five years ago? Oh, okay. I can actually kind of answer that question. Good. Thank you. <laughs> so actually, 
I've been shocked to discover that the answer is almost nothing's changed. And I know this for a few reasons. So one is, you know, I recently redid both parts one and two of the course after a relaxing global pandemic break. And so coming back to it, I had to look back over and be like, oh, what was I talking about two or three years ago? Because everything's changed, hasn't it? That kind of felt that way. But then I looked at it and I was like, oh, no, all of these things are equally relevant. Nothing's changed. And I think that's because the stuff I teach is, I don't really teach tools, you know, I don't really teach, you know, high level application platforms or whatever. I teach fundamentals and it's fascinating how they haven't changed at all. So, you know, I, um, I think I've got a bit better at teaching some of it. So I've, you know, so I've changed like how I teach SGD is now in a much more interactive way with little sliders and things. And it used to be like, oh, here's a picture from my book. Let me tell you about the picture. When I teach about productionization, even that hasn't changed much. Like I do always show Atul and, you know, I used to use Voila. Now I use Gradio. But the fact is in each case, it's like, oh, look, you know, here's a REST interface we create. And like, you know, so we show with Gradio, like, oh, here's how you create a little JavaScript layer over the REST interface and do whatever you like with it. You know, data loaders, data sets, batching. It's all basically the same. And the amount of stuff that's actually changed is is pretty minimal for people who are trying to build and train models. The thing that's changed is how much you can now do without building and training models. So I recently did a video called The Hacker's Guide to Language Models, which is kind of a 90-minute brain dump of all the things I figure people ought to know. And most of it was not about training models at all. A lot of it was just like, here's how to use OpenAI's models, or even the training was like, oh, here's a script you can download called Axolotl, and you just type Axolotl space dataset name at the command line, and it does it. So that stuff, that's interesting, because it's a whole different audience. It's a whole different way of thinking about it. So it's definitely making me think, for all these people that maybe don't need to know really how to train models, I still want to teach them how to take full advantage of AI. And I think it needs a different approach. And although you don't, you, I mean, there is not a focus on training, but you do make clear how important, well, trans, we'll call it transfer learning, but in the form mm -hmm. of fine tuning or uh, mm -hmm. using RAG or, 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 or these, these types of things. And I think, I, I can't recall quite correctly, but you published a blog, blog post recently, I had a conversation called the end of fine tuning. So I'm wondering if you could just expand upon that and tell us about the importance of transfer, transfer learning mm -hmm. as, as a general concept. Oh yeah. It's everything. So yeah. we didn't know that when Rachel and I started fast.ai, we didn't know that. So when we started fast.ai, it was totally speculative. It was like, is it possible to not be a PhD graduate from one of the five deep learning labs and build something? without access to Google Brain Compute Cloud that's useful. And we didn't know the answer to that. But as we started looking into transfer learning that was like nobody was talking about, we were like, holy shit, why is nobody talking about this thing that actually makes the answer to this question? Yes, you can do it. You know, you can do it on a, what Colab didn't exist then, but you can do it on 
a small AWS instance, or you can do it on your own computer with one NVIDIA gaming card on it. And yeah, it's basically, okay, so now you're taking advantage of some big company that has trained a big model on lots of data and lots of computers and has been kind enough to release that to the world. And then it's learned for vision, how to recognize objects and shadows and rotations, and that's the hard bit. And then if you know all that, recognizing the difference between a, a golden retriever and a poodle is easy. So that's, you know, that's the transfer learning bit. It takes like a couple of minutes on one graphics card. And uh, yeah, so then the big step I guess I then took was to say like, oh, obviously that exact same process will work in language. Like I thought it was really obvious. So I asked a bunch of NLP people I knew, this is obviously going to work in language as well. And they all said, nah, definitely won't work. Language is totally different. It's way harder. There's no way anything that's happening in computer vision will work. So for whatever reason, I guess because I'm an arrogant bastard, I just did it anyway. And it did work. So ULM fit, which you mentioned earlier, is transfer learning for language. Rather than pre-training on a million ImageNet images and figuring out which ones are cats and which ones are cricket bats, I trained on Wikipedia and trained it to figure out the next word of a sentence. But it's the same thing, right? The, the basic model you end up with from that isn't any use to anybody until you fine-tune it, until you transfer do transfer learning on it. And the frustrating thing was that nobody realized, even after ULM fit, nobody realized that the fine-tuning bit was the important bit until... You know, so I kind of felt forecast yelling out into the void there and being like, it's all about the fine-tuning. And it wasn't until ChatGPT came out, which was based on fine-tuning, of course, instruction tuning and RLHF, and everybody's like, oh, wow, fine-tuning is pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> so, you know, it took a few years from the insight and the demonstration to people actually understanding what it was that was demonstrated. Absolutely. So, Hamill, I want to, one of the, part of the genesis for this conversation was you know, this crisis around ML engineering. And also you and I've chatted a lot about the, the emergence of this new role recently of the AI engineer. So I'm wondering if you can speak to ML engineering and whatever AI engineering is and give us your kind of nascent thoughts on this duality here. Okay, so there's this term AI engineer. Kind of understand what it is, but I don't really focus too much on the sort of popularized definition and just more books on like, what does my day-to-day -day life look like when I'm trying to work on LLMs? And like, what are the types of things I tend to focus on? And the thing that I tend to focus on a lot is looking at lots of data and evaluating and thinking about evaluation. And the reason that is, is like, if you, so the key is, and it's actually something that also learned from Jeremy, is like, you need to iterate really fast. When you're, when you're working on something, you're iterate, you're loop has to be super fast. If you change something, try something new, you should be able to get feedback within minutes or less or as fast as you can. And if you don't have a good evaluation framework, it's really hard. You can't do that. And then also just the nature of LLMs. If you want to fine tune them or if you want to discover what your failure modes are, you need to look at lots of data to understand what those are. And this is actually a core skill that a lot of data scientists and machine learning engineers are really good at. That's a kind of a key cornerstone of being a data scientist, even before LLMs. And that's something that really transfers really well. The things that are a little bit new are being okay with more software engineering 
because now the like the ML is closer to whatever platform or software that you're working with. So just to be really concrete here, I still see with the people I work with, you know, like about half the time I'm still able to use Python and develop, you know, the language model component in like a microservice. But then the other half of the time in that, in the other half, I would say is like growing more, or I see like more of it or like, you know, can't really develop in this microservice and I have to understand an entire application that might be written in another language like TypeScript, for example. And so that's what I mean by being more of, you know, getting more into software engineering. We've got a great question from Charles. That was a question related to something Jeremy was saying, but it's very relevant to this. Charles Fryers asked, do the folks Jeremy mentioned who don't need to train models need to use Python? JavaScript seems like a better choice potentially if you're consuming models via APIs to deliver value at the application layer. So how, how does that type of thing relate to what, what you're talking about? Yeah, so I mean, and the reality is, is like microservices are okay. Like a lot of people, you know, people like really large companies, but Silicon Valley companies have been using those. And certainly that's the thing. But then a lot of people are not using microservices and a lot of applic modern applications are not built with Python. Like there's no Python anywhere in there. And so if you want to glue you know, these large language models, especially if you're calling APIs, to the application and reason about it, you have to start getting comfortable in these other languages because it's not... You can't just hand it off and pretend like it's someone else's problem. You have to kind of tinker with, okay, how does this actually work and interact with the application? That's very much part of the language model. Is it like the, the, where the, the LM meets the UX and reasoning about that? You have to think about that. Not, not saying you have to be an expert, but it is when day to day work, I do find that. I do find that to be the case. So I do see like okay, the, the, the AI engineering definition as like that's popularized right now is like, it's like this JavaScript developer who learns a bunch of uh, language model tools and APIs and things like Langchain and stuff like that. And it's like gluing it, gluing stuff. The only little bit of the quibble I have with that is, okay, you need to look at lots of data and a lot of the best data tools are in Python. And so that's a force that's pulling that skill into this AI engineer that's unavoidable. You have to look at lots of data. How are you going to do that? If you're coming from a front-end development background or something like that, I think that's, you know, I find that to be a blind spot that I'm constantly am seeing. People rushing into creating applications around our language models without a good evaluation framework or without really looking at any data. And so I think these two skills come like match. I don't have the best answer of how to master all of them and just, you know, doing it one step at a time and like learning what I need to learn to, to do a good job, I guess. I'm curious what, yeah, if anyone else has a perspective. Yeah. Well, I'm also, I'm, I'm also interested in with, there are a lot of things happening here where we've got a democratization and we've talked about how, you know, people with low code skills and no code skills can can use large language models and that type of stuff on one side on the other side it's like you need to know some python and now some application layer stuff and then langchain and being able to look at data and it's not only looking at tabular data now it's you know large amounts of unstructured data that we're not even certain how to version or evaluate so perhaps shreya i know you think a lot about the democratization of of these skills and who can who can do these types of job. So how do you square these different different takes for yourself in terms of being able to do stuff with low code, but also in some ways re 
when you go one layer below, suddenly you need to know all these different things and have all these hacker skills. Well, I love this question. I also love that you mentioned looking at the data as a core skill of ML engineers. And what a lot of people don't realize is that that, that looking at the data and building intuition for you know what does materially impact your ML system, like changing your data, adding something to your output, putting assertions, evaluation, testing. If you're a trained ML engineer, you know to do these things. But if you are not familiar with machine learning or if, you know, LLMs is your first foray into having some sort of software with machine learning in it, then you are more inclined to add instructions to the prompt. So you like, do not output something of this form. You're, you're inclined to do a lot of prompt engineering and hope that at the end of the day, the system is just going to work for all failure cases. And I, I, it makes sense because people are always going to do what they're familiar with, right? Like Hummel mentioned, he is looking into like containers for LLMs. He's looking at different ways to like fine tune to go deep in that way. But a lot of other people are spending all their time on LLMs and they still don't, they don't do any training of models. They don't do any fine tuning of models. Everything is around, you know, how do we build better prompt engineering tools? How do we eyeball responses? Like where do we involve humans in the loop? How do we write better eval specs that use GPT-4? I, I find this very, very fascinating. Just, you know, the different ways that people are approaching the same problems. And it's not really clear if there is only one right way to do things. Everyone, event, I, I think looking at the data as a core skill set, everybody ends up realizing like, oh, wow, this is something that's important. But not everyone has, you know, strong opinions on whether they should be like using Jupyter notebooks to test their prompts, or they should be serving their models with REST APIs, or they should be able to use like Python or JavaScript or whatever. These kinds of questions, I, I feel like they're just the fact that there's like different right answers to them means means maybe we shouldn't be looking at them as much as you know, the, the questions that everybody unanimously you know, arrives at that same conclusion. Absolutely. And people coming from very different directions. That's one of the beautiful things here. People coming from a lot of different spaces. And there are actually two questions in the chat that I, that I want to get to. Before that, I just, Charles has also mentioned looking at data is Genshi Genbutsu, which I recognized, but I had to look it up. It's the Japanese principle of going and directly observing a location and its conditions in order un to understand and solve any problems faster and more effectively. So thank you, Charles. I'm going to use use that time and time again. I just wanted to mention something about what Hamel said. I think, or kind of, I'm just interested to hear your guys' thoughts about this, but I agree it can be helpful to, to dive into TypeScript or dive into all kinds of other languages or whatever, libraries. And that kind of thing used to scare the hell out of me. You know, I always like to just one language, focus on that for years, one web application framework, one database backend, one of everything, because that's all my brain can handle. And if I had to do something outside my kind of, it's outside things that I'd done in the last couple of years and were still kind of in my working memory, I'd probably just skip it, not do it, do something else, or find somebody else who knew how to do it and get them to do it. For me, that's changed with chat GPT and codex because yeah, I find I can dive in now, you know, I can dive in and do some video processing with FFmpeg or like 
Yeah, I don't know. The other day, I even wanted to just grab some stuff from my Apple Notes, and ChatGPT is like, "Oh, here's a Python script that uses open scripting architecture to attach to notes to enumerate." And I just like, okay, I wouldn't have written that myself. I don't know how to. I used open scripting architecture like 25 years ago when I was playing with Apple Script. But that's about it. So I guess I feel like I kind of want to encourage people to actually not just think of themselves as back-end Python programmers or front-end JavaScript engineers or something, because actually I find now, yeah, if, if, if ChatGPT is there to help me get started on some different back-end or library or platform or language, I can look like I know what I'm doing pretty quickly. and. I actually think it's really interesting because for like building a team or something, I wonder now, like, is it better to have a five-person team of really quick learners, open-minded people who are really curious about everything versus a 50-person team of specialists in every area? Because, you know, I always hated when I was running companies hiring specialists because there's all this friction that it creates. And the more you create that friction, the more you need more specialists to help with that friction management. And then you suddenly need management hierarchies and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. I'm wondering if there's different ways to do things now. You don't necessarily need unicorns, but maybe more people can be unicorns now. I agree with that. The only reason I'm able to dive into these things is because of Copilot ChatGPT. And basically everything I do with regards to writing code, I use things those heavily. Like all the time. Now that we're up it's to like, the yeah. new knowledge cutoff for April, you know, a lot of these tools didn't mm. exist when it was trained, but now we can actually ask about them. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Like, the, like whatever I said shouldn't be that scary. It isn't that scary. I'm able to dive into these other languages and get lots of help. And with a lot of practice, you can actually, it takes some work. So the one thing I want to say is, one thing that's really surprising is a lot of people aren't using large language models in their daily lives. Mm. If someone asked me, what should I do to get better with large language models? Like a developer asked me. One interesting thing I like find quite often is they're not really using large language models like in their daily lives, like all the time. And that is, is that's a, that's something that you should change. If you're not using like mm. large language models, how to use it as much as you can. Also, at least for now, the fundamental software engineering and computer science skills have suddenly become more important in my opinion. Like the fact that I know how to test for edge cases, you know, the fact that I understand race conditions, the fact that I understand how to debug things, like something, suddenly these are actually the skills that matter, whether or not I know the details of what parameters this function expects or what module to find it in or whatever, you know, doesn't matter anymore. But like, interestingly, I find ChatGPT, GPT-4, incredibly bad at almost all coding. Anything that it hasn't seen before in the training set, just, it just, just, it's terrible. And it's terrible at software engineering because it says like, oh, I see there's a bug. I'll fix it. And it assumes it knows what the bug is. It assumes it knows how to fix it. And it'll even write a comment at the top saying like, making it work by blah, you know, and it's still broken. It's like, oh, one final fix to do blah, and it's still broken. And so I find I have to tell it, you know, I'll say like, the recommended way to debug a piece of code is to 
write just one or two lines at a time, test the output and the types of what you expected, and then don't move on until you've run that piece of code. And like, I have to teach it how to debug, and I have to tell it, create tests that include these things. But gee, when I do that, then I'm 10x faster because it's, it's, I could just say, just do that thing. And it saves my limited brain capacity as well, because now it's doing that kind of boring, menial stuff. But yeah, I feel like the foundations I know are really dramatically more important than they were a year ago. The iterative cycle with ChatGPT, GPT-4 you've just mentioned, Jeremy, though, is something you've spoken about publicly. Hamill and I recently discussed it several times on several podcasts that the first time you ask it something usually isn't the best response and then you have a conversation with it and that i suppose that's analogous to the first machine learning model you train usually isn't the best model but then you introspect do some error analysis well and, specifically and keep going. i was referring to the code interpreter that self reflects like it runs its code right. and its test doesn't pass or it gets a compilation error or whatever and it says i'll fix it and it mm -hmm. it never fixes it you know and yep. sometimes i let it run takes like 20 minutes come back and the chat's like got 12 attempts and eventually I'll just stop it. <laughs> but when I use this trick of like teaching it basic software engineering principles, and I teach it the way of coding that, that Hamill and I do in kind of notebooks, because actually ChatGPT code interpreter is literally a, a Jupyter notebook underneath. Mm. So I, I, I teach it, like I say, like, okay, here's what I want you to create. Now, only think of the very first one or two lines of code, write those, check the outputs and types, and stop, and come back to me to see if I want to continue. And when I do it that way, it can actually solve things. Just like a human, generally, you can't just say, write this algorithm, and it writes the 50, you know, the person writes 50 lines of code, and it works. That's not how it happens. Be interesting to see if, OpenAI ever figure this out and actually teach ChatGPT software engineering? Because if they did, it would be much more useful. I, I think it's really important because it's really the write-offs. Like, oh, like you could just, any, you know, like, oh, yeah, I don't need to learn how to use ChatGPT. You're just talking to a thing. But no, actually what Jeremy is saying is being very thoughtful and practicing what works and what doesn't makes it, it's just like a completely different world. And a lot of people don't do that yet, to my surprise. Jeremy and anyone else, do you use system prompts to teach it in these ways? And or do you see a future of creating your own GPTs? Um, so the, I find system prompts aren't nearly enough. It's a bit specific to the context. I, I do want to try, yeah, I do want to try creating some GPTs because I think with some thinking about how to cluster the different kinds of things that chat GPTs predictably bad at and predictably, predictably can be taught how to do it well could make for some useful GPTs. But it's also something I feel maybe this is a better place for like open source models because open source models, you've got a bit more flexibility and the fine tuning and rag and stuff is a bit cheaper. I mean, I don't know if you guys have looked at OpenAI Assistance, which is the API thing behind mm. GPTs. It's just insanely expensive, like insanely expensive. Yep. I don't understand what's going on there. It's not that good either. So huh? No, it's not that good paint. either. No. So yeah, this feels like the edge of, there's some things OpenAI is really good at, but this is, yeah, this is maybe not one of them is putting these things together into a more holistic product. 
I would love your impressions and feelings from OpenAI developer day, and then perhaps how that changed when you started actually playing around with the tools. Anyone can feel free to start. At first, I was like, oh, wow, they're getting into more of the infrastructure around language models. Like, it seems like they're making a big play. And I was like, oh, of course, maybe it'll be good. It seems they're putting a lot of, yeah, it seems like they might have some advantage there. And then as soon as I got access, I played with it as much as I could for an entire day. I was really disappointed. I struggled to make, for example, GPTs work the way, at least that they were advertised. And I thought, wow, this is just really bad. And then I had less of an existential crisis to, to a degree because I thought, okay, there's a lot of this, the tremendous, the, that white space is like definitely still there. And it's, but yeah, I mean, that's, that was what's going through my head. Raya, how about you? I, I still feel very optimistic about developer day or just everything that was announced. I found it very interesting, like how strongly people reacted to it. So maybe some people have very, very high expectations or, you know, they, they like a whole bunch of people were talking about how like startups are canceled now due to developer day. And I'm like, how, how are they canceled? Like they're all pre-seed or seed stage or whatever. Like it's not like they exist. They don't even have a product that everyone's using. It really reinforced in my my mind that like OpenAI is fundamentally building a consumer product. And so they're going to throw a hundred things at the wall and probably only one of them will stick because that is how consumer mm. products work. And we are the consumers. And it's it's not like, you know, somebody's like building a technology that organizations that like enterprises are using and, you know, they get like one million dollar contract and like they're happy. Like we're we're the consumers that we're trying everything and not everything will stick. And I, I think that's like pretty far for the course. With GPTs, I, at first I was like, okay, what could I possibly do with a GPT? I, I don't know what I, what I need a GPT for that ChatGPT doesn't already do for me. But I found one case, one use case. I spent six hours thinking of use cases and building different things. And this is around making figures for my talks or my slides. And I think it's, it's because I have a clear process. I have a style that I want to make figures in. Like, I want to make it a little bit simple, maybe black and white, a little cartoony, cute. And I want that to persist. And I need to make many, many figures. I need to make a figure for every few or visual for every few slides. And I know that there's a broader theme. Could you give an example of like a figure? Yeah. Uh, or just like a visual. Yeah, but can you get be specific? Like you're talking about like a neural network diagram or a... A neural network di diagram could be one of them. Okay. Um, I... I gave a talk at a lab this morning and the title figure, hold on, let me pull it up. Title slide figure is, I, should I share my screen? I feel like that's yeah. the best way to like okay. show this. Yeah. Okay. 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 So like, like I want cohesive figures or visuals, whatever you want to call it. And the best way to do that was a custom GPT. Because it remembers the style and all of the things, you know. Wait, how does throughout... it remember the style and all of the things? The, I put it on the system prompt. Okay, so it doesn't exactly so, know, like you couldn't, it's not that you can have exactly the same character appear each time, but just that the, the general totally. style. It, it knows like These are really the cool. pattern of the queries that I have. So my queries are like, 
my slide is titled today's roadmap. And, you know, I want like a long winding road, but not too windy. And I want it to go top to bottom or left to right. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. And and I felt so happy when I got it. Yeah, beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Really nice. And yeah. it, this is really cool. This this is something that like say I wanted to do without a GPT or whatever, I kind of would have my stable diffusion prompt and I'd have to give it the context every single time. But it, it just it goes to a point of you know, I, at the end of the day, I can just keep paying attention to the emotions that all of us feel when all these new things come up. That's the whole point of developer day. Like this to release tooling that get us all really hype or like really upset or really demotivated <laughs> or in an existential crisis. But like that's that's the way that all of this works. So. Yeah, I've been trying to decide whether I'm ready to make a call on OpenAI and whether we should say NGMI, they're not going to make it. Because that's my feeling after seeing their recent stuff is I'm feeling like, hmm, they're not going to make it. Because the basic premise here is exponential growth in capabilities. And we're, oh, they're hitting the wall. They're closing up signups to ChatGPT+. They're tweaking, like their new product is the same product as before, but a bit cheaper and faster. And it actually seems a little bit crappier. They're not releasing stuff for a year because they can't get enough GPUs to run it on. This is not feeling like a boom, fast takeoff of super intelligence. Do you know what I mean? This is feeling like, mm. oh, we found a quite useful, really quite useful technology that quite quickly surprised a lot of people in how capable it was. There was then an assumption that that would result in a rapid feedback loop of improvement, um, which I kind of expected as well. But the thing I had, I think, not thought enough about is th that improving capabilities without increasing energy and other resource use is not obvious. It's not necessarily clear that that's possible, you know? And so we kind of seem to be, or at least OpenAI kind of seem to be hitting a bit of a wall here, which I think is interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're, they're going to do the $10 billion training run at some point, and then maybe after that, they'll do the $100 billion training run. But then I think, well, what, what then, right? Because now you've got this API that's going to cost like $3 per token or something, you know, and, and two hours later, you get two sentences um, that are like 30% better than the ones that it'd give you now. So I've been finding this quite interesting. And also, yeah, also the fact that ChatGPT was basically an accident, you know, it was like, oh, let's try just chucking something out there to help like people understand a little bit about what GPT-4 is going to be. Maybe a handful of people will use it. And, you know, accidentally, that was really useful. And now they're kind of like, oh, you know, and then Microsoft's like, oh, you guys create useful products. So we want to, you know, the, Microsoft's now in, basically in control, right? Because OpenAI is entirely dependent on Microsoft. And Microsoft gets 75% of the profits. So they got to keep churning out 
useful products for Microsoft. And it seems they're not actually that good at churning out useful products, you know. So I don't know. I think it's really interesting to me. This, the OpenAI, the result of both OpenAI Dev Day and just their overall trajectory since releasing GPT-4 is like, I'm becoming more and more bearish on their future, I guess. Um, it kind of feels like they're going to be, you know, they might, I, could, I could imagine them being the next Google, uh, which is not bad, to, you know, to be sure, or Alphabet. But yeah, I'm not sure they're going to go past that. Slightly bearish on OpenAI. Does that make you more bullish on open source models? Not sure. I don't know how I feel about open source models. I mean, I, I like open source models and I want them to be successful. But I, I think OpenAI is very good at what they do. You know, they're mm. good at building models and they're good at serving models. But, you know, I think the thing is, like if you look at Anthropic's, you know, leaked pitch deck, where they said like, oh, whoever's ahead in 2025, 2026, they're, they're going to win. So that's all that matters. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true, actually. I used to think that's reasonably likely. It had a reasonable chance of being true. Now I don't think it's going to be true. So that does mean that the open source folks are going to have, I think, time to catch up. You know, obviously, if there was this exponential growth thing going on, then that's, and that's it for open source unless states get involved and either forcibly slow down the big commercial companies or massively inject something into kind of uh, academic collaborations like, you know, a CERN-style project open yeah. source was going to lose. That would be awesome. I, yeah. Let, let's just clear about what Anthropic is. is and, and correct, I'm going to state some recent historical facts that may, I probably need to fact check. So you can fact check me. Anthropic was formed by... A bunch of people who were high up at OpenAI and perhaps mm -hmm. were expressed dissatisfaction with the money OpenAI was taking and that it was becoming more closed. Well, they were pissed off about the Codex thing, particularly. They thought that was irresponsible. So my understanding is that was the forcing function where they were like, okay, that's too much. We're out. That makes sense. And then they left to form Anthropic, but... Of course, after that, they recognized that need, they needed pretty serious injections of capital and took maybe $4 billion from Amazon or something like that. Yeah, right? this is what happens to every do-gooder company in the world. At some point, yeah. the stakeholders are like, oh, whatever we're doing, we could do it better if only we had more money. And so then they start bringing in people who are good at making money, and then they become controlled by those people, or they themselves get focused on making money. Because this is a capitalist society, you know? So, yeah, the exact thing that Anthropic left because they hated it, they've now done the same thing. They've released a consumer product. They have a sales team. They have their employees get equity. That is obviously pointless unless they're making it a, making a profit and, and have some way of making that into liquidity. And every, everybody who's got any background in business at all knew that, that all of those things were going to happen because of course they do. So in your mind, what are the odds that one company like OpenAI or Anthropic create a monopoly, capture the entire market or an oligopoly, like a handful of them mm. do either through a acquiring increasing resources or regulatory capture, which we haven't really yeah. talked about yet, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. As so well. to me, it just totally depends, right? Putting aside regulatory capture. If these positive feedback loops 
are a thing and they're a thing even given resource constraints and energy constraints and so forth. So if these companies are actually able to continually improve capabilities at a growing rate without having an accompanying growing rate in cost, then there, there has it basically has to be a monopoly. You know, whoever's mm. ahead gets ahead by further and further. And so why would anybody use the alternative? And so they end up with, you know, all the power in the world because they own the thing which is like responsible for all the value in the world. On the other hand, if that, as, as I think seems likely now, if that isn't going to happen, then there's no particular reason it, there would be any, well, I think the economics look similar to Google. And Google is a monopoly, to be clear, but they only get to stay a monopoly if they keep being reasonably good at what they do. There's nothing fundamentally making it impossible for, like if they became just crap as being a search engine and somebody else can just come along and be a better search engine. So they do have a pretty serious monopoly on search, but I suppose on the advertising market, you can think of Facebook or Meta and, and Google. I mean, they don't have a, it's, it's not impossible for others to compete with them if they stopped being good at what they were doing. They actually have to keep being a good search engine in order to maintain that monopoly. Yep. It's ditto to some extent for Amazon. Like they've got a lot of monopolistic practices and they're actually being taken to court, I guess, by the FTC. But nonetheless, if, if they were not genuinely a good place to buy stuff from, then people will stop buying stuff from them. And in fact, in Australia, they're not a particularly good place to buy stuff from. You know, not mm. not that many people use it in Australia. Can you tell us a bit about regulatory capture? And then I want to go on to kind of talking about how to think about whether to use open source models or vendor-based models and, and that type of stuff. But particularly with everything that's happened recently in the US and, and the EU, I'd have to fire myself for not asking you about regulatory capture. I mean, it's a great time to talk about regulatory capture because everything is changing. So mm. if you'd asked me last week, I would have been pretty dismal on it. It was, you know, there was this massive shift in the Overton window where suddenly all these world governments and world leaders, you know, Sam Altman was going out doing state visits and stuff. And the, you know, overarching theme I kept hearing from governments was, oh, wow, existential risk is such a problem. We have to care a lot about AI safety and the way we should be doing it. Like you look at the EU AI Act, it totally changed from earlier versions to be like, oh, well, everybody's going to have to submit their model runs ahead of time and have them approved to prove that they're safe before they train their model. And previous versions, correct me if I'm wrong, were about more like deployment. High risk applications. Yes. They, they were like, if you're going to use AI to decide which insurance claims get paid out, then these are all these things you have to do first, which makes perfect sense. Or else mm. if it's like, you're not allowed to train a model until you can prove that model can't be used to send a blackmail email, like obviously that's impossible because it's a general purpose computing device. So the regulatory capture there was basically because it's impossible to prove a model is safe and because new competitors couldn't come in until they could prove their models are safe. And the existing models were all assumed to be safe because they were frontier models were defined as being anything bigger than the current biggest ones. It was just totally locking in the entrenched players. You know, it's full on 100% regulatory capture. So then interestingly, it's all changed in the last few days. 
basically with in uh, basically in Europe, a, a few companies in Europe told their representatives, "This act is going to destroy us, and we are the biggest hope in this country to compete with OpenAI and Anthropic. So if you do this, we're dead." So like that was Mistral in France. It was what's called like Aleph Alpha or whatever in Germany. Somebody in Italy was doing something similar. I don't know who it was, but so then their governments came out and said, "All right, we're we're not going to do anything that threatens open source." And then the UK, who had been the most like into the, you know Rishi Sumac was like all over this existential risk stuff, and uh, yeah, one of his ministers came out yesterday and said, "No, we're not going to do anything that's going to threaten open source." So yeah, it's been this fascinating reaction from politicians of being like oh maybe if we just do all this stuff that the corporate lobbying tells us to do american corporate lobbying tells us to do and in the process destroy the ability of our local companies to compete maybe that's not a good idea <laughs> so and we said also a similar thing like suddenly even in vc a bunch of vcs a couple of days ago all signed this thing saying we're going to make sure that all of our portfolio companies ensure safety again can't be done so uh, mm. now there are literally founders putting up screenshots on twitter of their emails to vcs saying i'm pulling out of this round that you're going to do because you signed this and my I, i've heard through the grapevine that vcs the vcs that signed it are very surprised i don't think they'd thought it through but to me i'm just like well, what were you thinking you know who who decides on behalf of their portfolio companies what their portfolio companies are required to do? And the VCs, they don't understand this as well as their portfolio companies do. So why are they telling their portfolio companies what to do? It's it's madness. Hmm. So I think maybe a bit of common sense is starting to appear, fingers crossed. Absolutely. So bringing this back to a conversation of what people who are listening and watching can can do to get started with all of these te technologies. I think this difference between vendor-based stuff and open source models is very interesting. Of course, you mentioned your hacker's guide to large language models on on YouTube recently, where you start with using ChatGPT, GPT-4, because it's the easiest way to get started, but then show people how to how, how to get up and running with open source models as well. So I wonder if Shreya and, and Hamill, what, what thoughts you have on the trade-offs between developers using open source models and closed models and situations in which it would make sense to use one or the other? I can go first. Um, I actually see them working together very well. So like a lot of people who are using GPT, you know, GPT-4, GPT-3.5, and they get started this way. If you're logging your data in a sensible manner, like you're logging your traces from your language model invocations, that is a rich source of data that then you can use that, to fine tune. And you can, like the same data you can use to fine tune open AI models with, you can use that same data to fine tune, op fine tune open models. There's nothing preventing you from doing that, except some people are a little bit skittish around the terms of service. But I find that terms of service fear to be a little bit, I mean, so I'm not a lawyer, but I find, I find the terms of service, like fear of terms of service to not make some that much logical sense because um so the so the terms of service goes something like okay you can't use the data that's generated by gpt for to to train a competing model now if you really think about that 
what does that mean? So that means like, and if, if you have function calling and rag and all of this stuff uh, in your product, any data generating process that your language model touches is now, quote, infected by this uh, GPT-4 terms of service. And then if you really think about it carefully, if you have that view of the terms of service, maybe you shouldn't be using OpenAI because none of your data is yours. Because there's so many things like when you have rag and function calling and all this stuff, there's so many de- data generating processes that to think that you will never be able to train your model based on anything it touches, that doesn't make, that doesn't, this seems like a really difficult uh, position that even open AI wouldn't want. And so this data can be used and is actually what a lot of people are doing successfully is strapping themselves this way. Now, yes, you don't want to train a foundation model that competes with open AI, but that's not what most people are trying to do. They're just trying to use hybrid between both or use them together. And there's a lot of reasons why people want to use these things together. For example, for evaluation, you want to use a lot of times the most powerful model you can for certain tasks. Um, and yeah, there's like, and then also like synthetic data generation and things like that. A lot of times you want to use a p- powerful model. There's a lot of like things where you can uh, use them together. So I see, I see actually that they complement each other if you think about it correctly in a lot of ways. Um, and Hamill's being over humble again. He he may not be a lawyer, but he is trained as a lawyer. So it's not, he's not totally speaking out of his ass here. I mean, I get, yeah, like, it's, and again, it's not legal advice is like, if the basic common sense principle is if a company, if someone has some rule and that rule, a certain reading of that rule doesn't make sense for that company, well, that's probably not a good reading of that rule hmm. because they're the ones who made the rule. And so, yeah, so I just want to say that. So, yeah, I'll give it over to Shreya. Curious what she has things said. I also think they work hand in hand. I mean, anecdotally, GPT-4 is the best LLM we have today. So I think a lot of people will get value out of trying GPT-4 to just see what is the best performance you could hope for your tasks that involves LLMs. And if that's not good enough, then you may need to wait a little bit more or think about how you want to do your data engineering before putting stuff in your prompt. But just having that kind of ceiling performance or a notion of a ceiling performance can help figure out what you want to do next. The other thing is, I mean, it's kind of crazy, but I, I think that OpenAI has some of the best API ergonomics for these LLMs. Like to get started with Llama, you need to figure out, or an open source model, you need to figure out, okay, like I should probably serve it somewhere and then I need to talk to that server and this also costs money or I need to pay someone else who's serving Llama and then it kind of feels the same. So yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where there's no real right answer and people end up trying a bunch of different models. What I think is really interesting is sometimes people will try a model or try developing their LLM chain or pipeline on top of some model and they would have overfit so hard to that model. Their prompt will overfit so much to that model that when they try it, like off the bat on some other model, they might be like, oh, this performance is so bad in comparison. I'm not going to consider using an open source model. But a lot of that is just because they spent so much time prompt engineering on like GPT 3.5 Turbo. And well, well yeah, that, that does make sense. Like you've added all of these special instructions to your prompt to like figure out the failure modes or cut those cases. Yeah. So I'm excited for them to all kind of progress at the same time. 
to get to the same level. Absolutely. We see that happening in, in parallel and converging and intersecting. I, I do wonder if there's a question as to what the term open source even, we use open source when we talk about models to mean generally like the weights are, are, are released, but that doesn't necessarily mean the code is released or even what the, what the training data is, right? So it seems like open source is kind of even potentially a multi-dimensional space now, right? Well, the pro I mean, the, the, the main problem is the license under which the weights are released. So generally the mm. code is available under like a real open source license like Apache. But the weights generally come with a license agreement, which, for example, in the case of the E34B model, which is currently the best open source model or base model, is a no commercial use license. Llama 2 comes with a license that does not let you use Llama 2 data to train models other than Llama models and also requires you to not use it at all if you're a giant company. Phi 2, which is just released by Microsoft, is a no commercial use license and the ceo of microsoft got up on stage and said we're releasing a new open source model phi 2 so i use those words but it's it's not open yep. source under any normal definition like in the sense of commercial you know no commercial use so there's very few models that are available under a do what you want license Llama 2, I guess, is the closest we have. We're going to have to wrap up in a couple of minutes. I, I do have a question because I have, you know, a group of people here who have deep expertise in, in this, but we're all very interested in literate programming and, uh, and notebooks to a variety of, of extents. How do you think tools like notebooks are affected by LLMs and how might literate and exploratory programming need to adapt to incorporate? everything that's happening in generative AI and LLMs at the moment. In 30 seconds, Jeremy. I think Hamill should start on this one. He's been thinking about it more recently than I have, I suspect. Yeah, so the tools that incorporate LLM stuff has been developed with IDs in mind first. And so that's one struggle that I feel is kind of like literate programming tools, like the ones that Jeremy made, like MBDev. Okay, I can't use co-pilot as fluidly inside notebooks as I can, you know, in IDEs and things like that. And I think, I think that paradigm is really important to bring into things like notebooks. As Jeremy said, chat GPT is a notebook and it's like a very native environment to have conversations with not only yourself, but with an AI or with anything else. So I think it does need to evolve. Currently we're at this point where there's a lot of tension between that, because even as a person that loves these environments, like I'm being pulled away in cases where I want to avail myself of LLMs in my programming. You know what? Like ChatGPT is a notebook disconnected from the rest of the world, just like Jupyter Notebooks were pre-NBDev, you know? So pre-NBDev notebooks were a thing you could only basically do like some prototyping or analysis in. They were disconnected from the rest of the world. No, no tests, no libraries, no continuous integration, no anything. It was its own little world. So yeah, ChatGPT now feels like that to me, which really limits its utility. I agree. I think it's a big opportunity to, to meld these worlds. Well, I, I, I've got a final, final question. I want to keep it pretty vague, but I'm wondering, maybe we're going to start with Shreya for... 
anyone w- working in in this space or getting started in this space, what's a what, what's a call to action? Something that that you'd like to see see more people do. Oh man, Hamel already said it earlier, but just figure out how to use ChatGPT as much as you can in your daily life in a way that's like sustainable. So not try to ask ChatGPT for everything, but genuinely. Well, one thing I did, I want to say like in January or February of this year was, okay, for two weeks, I'm going to just try to do everything in ChatGPT. And wow, did that help me understand what it could be useful for, what its failure modes were. Yeah. With, with an open mind, honestly. Awesome. How about you, Hamel? Just to add on that, look at data. Look at lots of data. Don't just vibe check stuff also. Try to measure, come up with metrics on if your system is working or not. And look at lots of data. And if you find that looking at data is painful, make some small tools for yourself to help you look at that data. And I'm talking about the LLM data specifically. Awesome. And Jeremy? Watch my Hacker's Guide to Language Models and try out some of the things that I show. And also when it comes to trying out making your own tools, try making them in some of these super fast and easy things like Gradio or Solana, the new kind of Voila thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I was working with Jono Whitaker on a recent Kaggle competition, an LLM Kaggle competition, I thought he, he showed a great example. He's actually got a video of it maybe we could link to where he was like, oh, I want to understand this data better. So I'll spend 15 minutes or half an hour, I don't know exactly, creating a little Gradio tool. That's something that he just whipped up in a few minutes to use it for a few hours. And I, I like that idea, the idea that we can build, particularly now if you use ChatGPT, you can whip up a, a quick look through the data tool, you know, mark a flag, a few duplicate records, stuff like that. You can create it in a few minutes. Great. And actually, oh, we'll include that link to Jono's video in the show notes. Jono has been here saying nice things and commenting uh, as well. I've already linked to your hacker's guide to LLMs here as well and told people to check it out. And I'll I just told add that. Jono to come and to troll Hamill as much as possible. And I don't see any sign of that happening. So he's let me There know. hasn't been. He'll troll, I mean, he'll troll me afterwards for sure. I'll, I'll also just add, I, I do think advice to, you know, interact with these LLMs and ChatGBT as much as possible. Hamill a few weeks ago suggested that I, you know, when I, when I go for walks, talk with ChatGPT, you know, because it's got whisper and all of that to do speech to text, to text, to text, to text, to speech now. And so chatting with ChatGPT while going for, for long walks has been incredibly in- insightful into what is possible, what's possible there and, and what isn't. So it's time to wrap up, but I'd love to thank everyone for, for joining. And I'd also love to thank all of you, Shreya, Hamill and, and, and Jeremy, not only for your deep expertise, but, but your time. And I always enjoy chatting, chatting with you all. And it was just such a wonderful conversation. So thank you all. Thank you, Hugo. And thank you for doing your best to make me look good, which is always a challenge. Thanks, Hugo. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.